Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange... The Bizarre, The Unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Last night was an exciting night. We got our our new internet hooked up and we have like a gigabit speed now. So it's wicked fast, bub. Our TV even looks better. It does. It's amazing. Yeah, streaming stuff. It looks, oh, that's what high def looks like. (laughs) And the guy who came to hook it up was such a nice guy. The cable guy, he had to make two or three trips because we needed special equipment that he didn't have. And it was a really hot day and he was having all kinds of issues. And so you kindly went down and gave him a bottle of water. Then he came back up to hook up the inside stuff and mm-hmm. he was having difficulty with that. And then the the modem doesn't work. And, you know, we're just chatting it up with him and he was a nice guy. He said, I'm, I'm going to have to come back again with another modem. So he shows up. Up, I don't know, maybe two hours later, comes in his own vehicle. It's evening. You and I are sitting on the deck having beers. He comes in, well, he knocks on the door. I go down and I I, I let him in and, uh, you know, he's following me up over the stairs and I'm like, is this your last stop for the night? And he goes, yeah, yeah. And I said, it's, it's, it's awfully hot. Would you like a beer? And you said. I said, sweetheart, don't offer him beer. He'll think we're swingers. <laughs> Suddenly, the atmosphere changed. (laughs) He said two words the entire rest of the evening that he was there hooking up the modem. Uh, Whereas before, he was chatty as can be. And then all of a sudden, he he just very quietly hooked up the cable modem. And I just stood real close to him while he was hooking stuff up. Like, (laughs) oh, you're really good at that. I love how you handle your fiber optics. That's a thick cable. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> We're not swingers. I didn't say any of that. Yeah. I, I mean, I did say the thing about swingers. But. Yeah, yeah. We're not swingers, but, you know, no judging. It's just not our thing. Although we might have gotten a really good deal on a better package of... <laughs> oh, he would have given it <laughs> No. No, I just feel like it's... Um, I feel like it's not okay to offer alcohol to service workers. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, it was hot. He was on his way home. <laughs> I was just being cordial and apparently a little creepy. Sorry about that cable guy. 
So you're ready for my story? Yes. So what was there to do in the 16th century? You know, besides dodging human waste and slaughterhouse runoff that flowed freely in the open gutters along most major streets. Um, badminton? During this period, there were two very popular fads. They were crazes. They became all the rage. One was mummy unwrapping parties. Ew, what? That's... Yeah. What? Well, rich people in Europe would buy mummies and then bring them into their parlors and invite people over for drinks, and then they would unwrap the mummy. That is vile. I wondered what what became of the mummies afterwards. Well, they probably ate them. No, they did not eat them, but you're close. A lot of them were pounded into medicine. Mummies. Yeah, I know. I did a topic on that, and they ate it. We've done 11 bajillion topics I can't remember where I left my cell phone. Well, it just seems weird that you'd correct me when I just said the exact same thing. I'll just enjoy my tea. So you got the mummy unwrapping parties, but the other big craze of the time was live theater. But a very different kind of theater than than what we think of today. Okay. It was not uncommon for friends during the 16th century to have a couple of pints at the pub on a Friday night and then buy tickets to the latest performance at the local dissection theater. Oh, oh yes. Okay. Also called the anatomical theater. It's basically like a, uh, like a morgue meets a fish tank. That's a good comparison. <laughs> now I, I'd heard of the term anatomical theater, before, but never really thought of it as a true theater where people would go to the box office and buy tickets, maybe get some snacks before they headed into their seat. Well, no. But that's exactly what it was. You know, we, Is that we, why we still call it an operating theater? Yes. Because people used to buy tickets to go see it. Yes. What? I know. That's not real. You're not real. I, I'm real. You're Birds not, aren't real. You're not real. It was very similar to our experience today at a modern movie theater. The main difference would be instead of heading into the theater to watch the latest developments in the Marvel Universe, you'd take your seat and watch a dead guy get carved up. Whoa. Now, most of the time, those performing the dissections were doctors or they called them anatomists or at least med students. Did Um, they have like top leading anatomists who were like handsome? Yes, yes, they did. (laughs) So this was done... In the name of science, you know, because, oh, the doctors are doing it is done in the name of science. But pretty much anybody could get a ticket for the, quote, performance and watch it from the comfort of a box seat. Um, I can't wait to go see the next Benedict Cumberbatch surgery. (laughs) Normally, upper society had first choice on the tickets, uh, of course, but any leftover tickets could be bought by anyone. I wonder if they had like a secondary market like StubHub, you know, <laughs> where you could buy leftover scalpers. Yeah, people out on the street scalping tickets, which is an ironic, ironic. term for that. Mm. According to Ranker, at first, temporary anatomy theaters would pop up. They'd be outdoors, like in a town square or in a lecture hall, even churches. Oh, wow. But by the second half of the century, major cities across Europe had uh, built permanent anatomy theaters for public dissection. These theaters were were very often, um, according to Ranker, hauntingly beautiful, and, and much like an opera house. Oh, wow. The anatomy theaters typically had uh, curved rows of seats, a steep rake, and a stage, just like theaters that were meant for dramatic productions. In fact, they were modeled after theaters designed for dramatic productions. Wow. 
The similarities between public dissections and the theater were not just limited to the physical space that both things took place in. Spectators, um, they would have to go, like I said, purchase tickets. You'd go to the box office, you'd buy your ticket. Then you'd go to the refreshment stand. Uh, Once inside, you were treated to musical performances while the dissections were underway. Wow, was there like an in-house band? Yes, yeah, in fact... There's one re- one recorded case of a dissection in Holland where they brought in flute players oh, wow. to entertain the audience while they were carving up a dead guy. Historian Giovanni Ferrari said, uh, quote, like actors, all those who worked the stage, the medical theorists, the dissectors, had to show their faces to the audience and clearly display the actions that they performed, just like theater goers, the audience expected a show. Whoa. So one of the very first dissection theaters was at the University of Padua in Italy. Now, this is an enormous theater. It's elliptically shaped with six tiers so that up to 300 people could easily view the dissection. There were 300 good seats. And over the door to the dissection theater, in there's a Latin uh, inscription that translates to, this is a place where the dead are pleased to help the living. That's nuts. So, um, it like, this place is still standing? Yeah, I guess Can so. Can you go and yeah, there's, see it? Actually, there's a picture of it. That's really neat. Yeah. Now, why was this not seen as disrespectful and terrible? That's a great question. <laughs> did, did those being dissected have to give their okay for it, or was it just general practice? So, no one... I mean, was there any sort of rule? Would... Uh, the wealthy have been dissected in public as well? Or was it just like the street urchins? What <laughs> I want to know about the parameters yeah, here. Yeah, no, I get that. The first thing I thought was how I would react at this type of an old-timey uh, event. Would I be repulsed at the uh, to the point of sickness or would I just sit there staring intently at the procedure while enjoying a box of junior mints. I don't know. Probably the latter. But um I don't know. Why why do people why did people not feel guilty about that? You, you see blood and you get a little <laughs> yeah. woozy. Yeah. So I don't know if you'd be into it. Here's what they did. They used criminals mostly. Oh okay. Okay. So they don't have rights. Well, no, they didn't have rights, and um, so the people performing the procedures didn't want the audience to focus on the dead man's identity, so corpses were those of criminals. They were anonymous so that the criminals' families wouldn't feel any any added shame. They were also brought in from different towns so that no one would recognize the body. So did you have to like have towns set up a trade network? Yeah, of there must like, have been okay, like, well, Jamestown, you're gonna bring in your dead bodies to uh, Cali, and then uh, you're gonna ship your bodies over here to uh, West Newbury. Right, and yeah, yeah, it was called the the Corpse Road. <laughs> it was like a co-op, a corpse co-op. To emphasize. What was about to happen was okay and not immoral. Anatomists would start the dissection by reading out a list of the body's crimes. I would think that would humanize them even more because then you know about what they were up to when they were upright and tootling around. That's that's true. Um, However, it's a lot harder to feel bad for a rapist or a murderer 
than just some random dude. If they knew that this person had committed these vile acts, it was much easier to separate or to, to have no empathy. I guess just knowing that they were criminals, you could probably imagine that they'd done any number of bad sure. things. Yeah. So, but that was part know. of the ritual. I guess okay. before they started. I mean, I'm not them arguing up. with you that it no, was the I'm way. Not, I'm just not saying. saying you are arguing with me. Stop arguing. I'm not arguing. You're not arguing. You're not arguing. You're not. The best source of bodies for the public dissections uh, was, of course, executed criminals. Now, these public dissections were not a common event, and this was due to several reasons. It was difficult to find bodies for the public dissections. Not enough criminals, got it. Right. Limited supply of cadavers from public executions. Very few people would willingly do this, you know, donate their body. Really? Yeah, very few people would do it. It was considered um, something you did to criminals. Sure. There might have been only like two public dissections in an entire year. Oh, so it would have been something that you wanted to go to because you didn't know when you were going to be able to go next. Right. It became That helped add to the whole craze. Got it. Of it. In Holland, they would ring the church bells before a dissection and lectures would come to a halt at the universities so that everyone could crowd around the corpse and watch. They were also limited mostly to the winter months for obvious reasons. Sure, because of the stank. Yeah, sometimes uh, a body, one body would be dissected uh, over 15 days. It was a lengthy procedure. Oh. So, yeah, they'd get right down to it. Oh, and I bet they could sell more tickets that way too. Sure. So that makes a lot more sense. I wonder if they have like a season pass Sorry. for that. We, we just know. got an email. Does Cat have ADHD? <laughs> <laughs> That's a valid question. <laughs> All right, I focus. Don't focus. Emails, but it just came. Focus. Shh. Okay. 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 All right. Got it. So public dissections, winter months mostly. In the warmer seasons, you know, it's harder to sell tickets uh, for something like that. Sure. So in many ways, the scarcity of the public dissections added to the demand and fanned the flames of the events into a craze. Makes sense. In fact, in uh, 18, or rather 1493, Italian physician Alessandro Benedetti wrote, in regards to the obsession with public dissections, he described how anatomy theaters needed guards to restrain the public even as it entered, as well as two stewards to collect the money from the, uh, the viewers. High-ranking members of the town, of course, again, were invited to attend first. And if there was space, then other people could clamor for that seat. But they had to have, like, armed guards to, to hold... Bouncers. The, bouncers, <laughs> essentially. Benedetti also noted that, quote, seating must be allotted in order of rank. The front row seats where audience members might get a chance to touch the body or assist the anatomist were reserved for the town's um, elite. Oh my God, did they call out members from the crowd? Would anyone else here like to yes. cut open a liver? They did. <laughs> no! They did that. Yeah, I would imagine sitting in uh, in the front row would have been like an old Gallagher concert where they pass out plastic ponchos to cover you. Except instead of watermelon, it's... It's a spleen. Spleen. <laughs> no, oftentimes they would... They would call for volunteers from the audience and somebody in the front row would come out and they'd say, yeah, hold this skin up, you know? Oh, no. And that was a real honor oh, sure. to be asked to do that. So, of course, the best source of bodies for public dissection were the executed criminals. But the vast majority of dead criminals were like men mm. in their 20s. Um, and so it must have got, you know, like anatomy theater enthusiasts, they must have kind of lost interest after a while. Oh, man, it's another 24-year-old guy. 
it's always a 24-year-old guy. You're at dinner parties talking about the uh, the theater showings that you've been to. And, uh, well, well, uh, about two years ago, Henry and I were able to view the autopsy of a 47-year-old white woman. <laughs> oh, 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 bully. Oh. That's not far from the truth. <laughs> Because they keep of the, their ticket stubs like on the fridge. Yeah, right. I was there for that. Remember that one? It comes out on DVD later. <sighs> of course, the lack of bodies led to the whole resurrectionist profession, the body ro- uh, grave robbers and body snatchers. When an anatomist could find a woman for dissection, it was a huge event. It was standing room only. Because you got to see boobs. You got to see boobs. And in many cases, they'd cut them off and pass them around. No, they would not. Yes, they would. Stop it. That's disgusting. They did that. Not just boobs, but all kinds of body parts. The most famous anatomist in the 16th century was Andreas Vesalius. Andreas Vesalius. And he prominently displayed the dissection of a woman on the cover of his book. He showed the woman's reproductive organs putting the woman's secrets on display for men to see because the audience was mostly men. Sure, of course. And I bet that this that made this uh, Antonio Banderas a very popular uh, <laughs> Oh yeah, he was he, that's, surgeon. That's why he was probably the leading anatomist. Got it. Boobs. Wow. There's an image of him in his book. It's actually a beautiful painting done in that era of him peeling the skin off a cadaver, essentially degloving an entire arm. He called the skin, quote, the very fabric of the human body. I suppose that's accurate. Guillaume Rondelet founded the dissecting theater in Montpelier, France. For Rondelet, the goal of public dissections was to educate medical students on the human body, hopefully creating a healthier world. Okay, that seems legit. He was so committed to this goal that... um, his infant son died and he dissected his infant <gasps> son in public. Girl, that's yeah. beyond. Be- yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, children dissections were very, very rare. And the fact that he did this in the name of science was quite remarkable. Or concerning. Or maybe a little. I feel, Those were different times. Yeah. That makes me very uncomfortable. Now, here's a weird thing. You you look at these 16th century images of dissection theaters and the medical procedures going on. They're often uh, wood carvings Mm -hmm. or sometimes there'll be sketches or paintings or whatever. But what's interesting is there's something consistent throughout all of these uh, pictures, these paintings, these sketches. And that's that every dissection depicted, usually standing close to the body, is a dog. I knew you were going to say that. That's so weird. Dogs are shown sitting at the feet of the corpse, sometimes restrained from running toward the body, even poised, ready to catch any uh, squidlins that might fall from the table. They kept a dog there to keep the floor clean, essentially. Oh, well, you don't want to slip. No, you don't want to slip. But after like two weeks of that, that's not good for that dog. Good point. Oof. Oof. So, so when people would come in for the uh, dissection, the body would be already prepared and lying on the table. And by prepared, I mean skinned and all of the entrails taken out. There oh, was, that's not part of it? No, oh. no. They would essentially clean it up for that reason. Uh, once in a while, they'd leave the skin on, but the, they had assistance for this. Their job was vitally important for a uh, 
a good performance. Guido Guidi. Yes, Guido Guidi, a 16th century anatomist, described how the assistants had to wash dry, skin, or scrape the bodies, which are to be opened. During the procedure, they had to remove the intestines and entrails. So, okay. So, during the procedure is when, you know, the guys would come over, the assistants would come over with a slop bucket, and they would pull out the intestines and put They're them in like a They're like the sous chef. Yes. They're doing the salads, cutting up the radishes into little flowers and such. The job description in, an, in a job ad, it said uh, it, the men, it clearly required men who, quote, must not mind horrors or faint in the presence of a corpse. Yeah, I would think so. Guidi explained, we usually employ men of the lowest classes who are accustomed to hard work and do not refuse to touch or carry away that which is messy. But in some cases, the assistants did pass out or just refused to continue the uh, the performance, if you will. I'm really surprised that they didn't have like chicks in bathing suits doing it. Well, like, da 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 you might be onto something, a whole new pay-per-view event. Ooh, these are slippery. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if the assistant did faint or fail to, uh, to carry out his duties, that's when they would get help from the front row. Oh. Can I, can I have a volunteer from the audience, please? And um, anybody could be there. Wow. But they would bring them out and uh, they would say, hey... Um, Will you hold this up while I cut this off? And in one case, uh, a member of the audience assisted in removing the heart. The uh, attending physician, if you will, handed him the heart and said, here, pass this around. And they just passed it all around. Now, if you were wearing evening gloves, would you take them off to hold the heart? <laughs> yes. You take your gloves off, you put them in the case that holds your opera glasses, mm. and then you pass the heart around. Okay. They passed it around with such enthusiasm that it was mangled beyond all recognition, Jesus. according to reports. But if you weren't one of the lucky few to be called out of the audience to handle a pancreas... Mm. Oftentimes at the end, they would let people file by and actually put their hands in it and stuff. Oh, sure. You know, just that was, that was, I wonder if you had to pay extra. It was like a meet and greet. Yeah. Like a VIP experience. Yeah, exactly. You get a t-shirt and you get to fondle the corpse. Uh uh Yeah. uh Yeah. Okay. 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 Anyway, that's what they used to do back in the 16th century. The end. Well, how about that? (laughs) And now that thing in the middle. These are sports that were enthusiastically played by United States presidents. As you know, being a president, it's a pretty competitive arena in its own right. So it makes sense that uh, those who want to be president would also want to be successful in a sport, like Abraham Lincoln, a very successful wrestler. Who would have won, Abe Lincoln or The Undertaker, do you think? Wait, I guess The Undertaker ultimately did win. Whoa. Oh, oh that's dude, bad. That's rough. Too soon. Number four, Richard Nixon. He loved bowling, which I don't know if that's, I guess that's called a sport. It's a sport. Who was it that said that uh, if you can drink beer while you're playing it, it's not a sport, it's an activity. But regardless, he loved bowling. Here's a picture of, of Dick Nixon bowling at the White House. And uh, he's got great form, but I'm, I'm noticing that his foot is about four inches past the foul line. Womp womp. Whoa, this picture just says so many things. Number three, Dwight Eisenhower. 
He made a name for himself as a halfback and a linebacker on a varsity football team at West Point. Number two, Teddy Roosevelt. He was a sickly child, so to uh, to build up his body with vigorous exercise, um, he he became a boxer. He entered boxing tournaments. He wasn't that great a puncher, but what he was able to do was withstand the punishment that he uh, that he took. He would let people just beat on him until they got tired. Oh, wow. <laughs> the old rope-a-dope. And number one, George W. Bush, Ronald Reagan, Franklin D. Roosevelt, and Dwight D. Eisenhower, all cheerleaders. Sis Boom Ba. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash 
oddities. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities. At a frequency so high, only your dog can understand. Matthew Lee Hansen from uh, England sent us a message. Hey, Kat and Jethro, just wanted to say that at the end of another grueling week of working for a living, I found myself at home tired and pretty fed up. I thought I'd relax and unwind by playing some thrash metal on my guitar. After five minutes or so, it was evident that I couldn't play for shit and stomped off with the grumps. Mm, I've been there. To make a cup of tea. Doing whatever I could to avoid a meltdown. Now, I had my tea. I was in desperate need to cheer myself up. It was then that a light bulb went off in my head. I suddenly heard Jethro's What You Got For Me jingle, followed by Cat laughing. It was then that I knew what would truly relax me. I'd dive headfirst into the box of oddities. Uh, it was like two good friends coming around to chat. Meltdown avoided. Thank you. Hope you're staying safe. We hope you are too, Matthew, in England. That was nice. That was nice. Also, good luck with your guitar playing. And with that in mind, what you got for me? What, what you, what, what you, what you got for me? What, 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 what you got for me? All right. What you get for me is what? Yep. Okay. St. Olga. St. Olga's birth date is unknown. It could be as early as 890 and as late as 925. Uh, She was born in Paskov. Little is known about her life before she was married to Prince Igor of Kiev and the birth of their son. Olga and Igor? Mm Mm-hmm. Nice. Was she the patron saint of goofy names? <laughs> no. Sviat. Sviat. Sviatoslav. And the birth of their son, Sviatoslav. Oh, well, there. That's better. Slav. Igor was the son and heir of Rurik, founder of the Rurik dynasty. And after his father's death, Igor was under guardianship of Oleg, Stop. So (laughs) Oleg had consolidated power in this particular region and conquered neighboring tribes and established a capital in Kiev. So this loose tribal federation became known as the Kievian Rus, a territory covering what are now parts of Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. So the Drevlians were a neighboring tribe 
with which the growing Kievan Rus empire had a very complex relationship. Relationship. <laughs> complex relationship. I've heard it both ways. Thanks. Yeah. Love you. The Drevlians had joined the Kievan Rus in military campaigns against the Byzantine Empire and paid tribute to Igor's predecessors. So basically, it was like that whole, uh, you know, you the tribes had to pay money or goods or whatever to the the leadership of this neighboring tribe because, you know, they all they work together in, in fighting and it's kind of like a protection thing you know It'd be a shame if something yeah. happened to your mongol horde kind of like that yes but in 912 when oleg died um instead the drevlians stopped paying their protection dollars and instead started paying a local warlord well igor didn't like this mm. he wanted the drevlians to continue giving them money and they use the word tribute it it, it means goods and monies mm -hmm, and stuff, mm -hmm. but I think it also held an honor position. You know, the tribute meant something. So he, in an attempt to restore his privileges in 945, took a trip to see the Drevlians and confront them so that they could would continue paying them tribute. It had been a few years, and the Drevlians were not having this. They, they thought it was a slap in the face. They didn't want to give... Igor and the Kievan Rus money anymore. Thank you very much. Enjoy your day. But Igor had a bigger army. So the Drevlians paid Igor their tribute. Fine. And <laughs> Igor uh, and his army tootled back. They were a little bit out of town before Igor went, you know what? No, it's been this like 33 years. You need to give us more money. So they turned around. I was just going to ask if they had to pay like back taxes mm. and, you know, penalties on top of that. That's what he was thinking. So he went back and seeking more tribute. The Drevlians thought it was ridiculous. They fought back. They seized the prince and they murdered him in a very grisly display. Ouch. According to HistoryAnswers.uk, they had bent down two birch trees <gasps> to the prince's feet and tied them to his legs. Uh, oh, my God. Then they let the trees straighten, <sighs> thus tearing his body apart. Oh, my God. This is according to a Byzantine chronicler, Leo the Deacon. Oh, my taint just went, nope. Oof. So in the book, The History of Leo the Deacon, a Byzantine military expansion in the 10th century, Dennis Sullivan suggests that Leo may have exaggerated that version of Igor's death, but that was a, a method that had been used in that region before. So it's unknown if that's entirely what happened, mm. but we do know that he was murdered and it weren't good. So it's 945. After Igor's death at the hands of the Drevlians, Olga assumed the throne. Their son, Sviat, Sviet, little Svieti, little Svieti, mm -hmm. was three. He was too young to take the throne, so uh, she served as regent until he was old enough. 
The Drevlians were emboldened by their success in ambushing and killing the king. So they sent a message to Olga. They considered her a pushover. I mean, she was a single lady. She's a chick. uh, And she wasn't... uh, Like, she didn't have a long history of ruling. So they thought uh, what they would do is try to take over their territory, the Kievan Rus, by way of marriage. So Hmm. they sent a group of suitors to go to Olga and propose marriage so that their two forces would unite and they could basically take over her territory well at least that was their first attempt at least their first thought wasn't let's just go kill her in the in the toddler prince well i mean they had a pretty big army so that may not have worked out very well i see for the drevlians one of the suitors that the drevlians suggested was the man that murdered her husband oh my god his name was prince mal what's what's very aptly named what would his opening line be Sorry, I tied your husband to a couple of saplings and let him go. Nothing personal. Would you like some nachos? So, okay. So the Drevlians uh, sent their their people to offer this uh, suggestion. <laughs> the negotiators boated to Kiev to pass along the king's message and to ensure that Olga would comply. They arrived in her court and they told her why they were in Kiev to report that they had slain her husband and that Olga should come and marry Prince Mal. Olga responded, Your proposal is pleasing to me indeed. My husband cannot rise again from the dead, but I desire to honor you tomorrow in the presence of my people. Return now to your boat and remain there with an aspect of arrogance. I shall send for you on the morrow, and you shall say, We will not ride on horses nor go on foot. Carry us in our boat, and you shall be carried in your boat. This is according to the Russian Primary Chronicle. This this is totally a setup. So, when the Drevlians returned the next day, they waited outside of Olga's court to receive the honor that she had promised. And the people of her court came out, and they picked them up in their boats, kind of like, uh, uh, what is it called? Palanquin, you know, those old fashioned uh, chairs that people yeah, would sure. carry with sticks. Right. You know, the stick chairs. The old old timey stick chairs, yes. I think is the uh, so technical term. They thought that they were being honored, like they were being carried in stick chairs. The people brought them into the court where they were then dropped into a trench <laughs> in their boats. Boats the, and all. Huh? Yep. Boats and all, Olga had ordered this trench to be dug overnight, and the ambassadors were buried alive. Oh, my. It is written that Olga went to the edge of the trench, bent down as they were being buried, and inquired whether they found the honor to their taste. What a bitch! They killed her husband! So she sent word back to the Drevlians and Prince Maul that she would accept this proposal that had been brought to her by mm. this this group. <laughs> but she would only agree if the Drevlians sent their elders, their, their <laughs> great and good, mm-hmm. to accompany her back to the territory. She felt that that was important uh, to show how important this matchmaking situation was. It was giving it its due honor that she be presented 
by way of the 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 great and good of their people to her new king. So they sent their elders. <laughs> and when they arrived, Olga commanded that after their long travel, they uh, be sent to the bathhouses. So they uh, would get cleaned up before uh, they, they had this very important discussion about her soon-to-be nuptials. Oh, no. She invited the men to appear before her after they had bathed. So they were sent to the bathhouse where the doors were immediately barred behind them and the building was set on fire. Wow. Holy shit. Wow. This chick <laughs> was not done. Essentially, the entire ruling class of the Drevlians had been exterminated, and she was not done. She wanted to do away with the rest of them, so she announced and sent word to the Drevlians mm. that they were on their way, uh-huh. that she was coming with mm. the noble people. Right. Very excited about these upcoming events. It's what every girl dreams of. She asked for a funeral feast to be arranged so that when she arrived, she could mourn her husband's death properly in the city where he had been killed. Despite not having heard from either of the missions that they dispatched to (laughs) Olga's court, the Drevlians set about preparing this feast. The mead is flowing. People are getting shmammered. And she um, decided that she'd wait until everyone was fairly punched and uh, then just start stabbing. <laughs> wow. So so she did it on her own or did she have people help she her? Had, she had her people help her. But she, but was, she was also... Uh, she's very hands-on. She was, yeah, she was pretty into this. She was feeling stabby. So about 5,000 people they murdered wow. during this feast um, until eventually the surviving Drevlians are begging for mercy and they offered anything Mm. To to yeah, back the fuck off. Right, exactly. Uh, honey, furs, and she seemed to soften. So she said, "Okay, I know that I have taken a lot from you. Uh, what I will say would be fair is if each of your homes gives me three birds. And I guess there was a like a thing with pigeons at that time. Like every household had pigeons. Hmm. I don't know if they were used for communique or if they were going to eat them. I don't know. Give me three pigeons, she said. This is again according to the primary chronicle. And three sparrows from each house. I do not desire to impose a heavy tribute like my husband. I require only this small gift from you. The chronicle records in great detail the feat of precision-guided pyromania that followed. Oh, no. Now, Olga, this is in quotes, gave to each soldier in her army a pigeon or a sparrow, then ordered them to attach by thread to each pigeon a piece of sulfur bound with small pieces of cloth. When night fell, Olga bade her soldiers to release the birds so they would return to their homes. So this was a, a very early version of a guided missile system with pigeons. <laughs> I mean, essentially, yeah, these birds made their way back to their nests in the eaves of these homes mm-hmm. and lit that shit on fire. <laughs> oh my God. She was clever. Then people fleeing this burning village because everything's being lit on fire at the same time. There's no Mm. putting it out. So people are just fleeing the village. As they were fleeing, she either killed, enslaved, or extorted everyone. She had like a little toll booth at the exit ramp. 
pretty much. Yeah. What yeah. do you got for me? Okay, no, that one goes. You're gonna you're you're gonna die into the pit. So she pretty much just decimated these people uh, because they murdered her husband. Wow. She remained regent ruler uh, until her son was old enough to rule. She decided that she would not marry anyone. She would keep the power in her family. And even though many people proposed, she decided that she would save the power of the throne for her son. And then in the 950s, she traveled to Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantine Empire, uh, where she learned about Christianity, converted to Christianity, brought Christianity to her region. Now she's a saint. Okay. Well, that seems fair. Sure. So that's Saint Olga, mm-hmm. the one that I just told you about the murdering and all that. Right. That's that saint. The patron saint of pigeon fires. Well, there's the title of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you guys. We love hanging out with you. Thanks for being here. The air conditioning is off right now, and um, I'm sweating my balls off. So, <laughs> listen, gonna... you're never going to score a Spectrum Man that way. <laughs> <laughs> I have to rethink my strategy. Want to welcome all the new members to the premium channel. Again, if you would like to help support this podcast and help it to grow, uh, you can do so by becoming a premium subscriber. That means you are a member of the Order of Freaks. You can get all the details at theboxofoddities.com. Yep, you get a lot of cool stuff. Ad-free episodes, get them a day early. You get a bonus episode every month, and you get uh, access to the Box of Oddities back channel, which is a direct line of communication to us, and we so appreciate your support. We also appreciate your topic suggestions. It's less work for us. Curator at theboxofoddities.com. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hello everyone, Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? 
Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.